right, so we are off on this new series. Uh, I'm always excited when we start a new series. Many times when we start, I don't really know where it's going to go, and that's kind of true about uh, what we're starting with today. But what we're starting with today is just so important to me because I, I really feel that, you know, for our country, uh, I think that you all see how divided we are, how much space we've let grow between us. Uh, and I think the church, even within the church, we've allowed so much of the disunity that is so commonplace outside of the walls to creep inside of the walls. I don't know that I sense that this is a, a huge problem for Mendham, uh, but of course, you know, we're not above uh, any, we're, we're no better than anybody else. But I do think that for the church, the coming years are going to be really big if we're going to figure out how to get this thing right. And so we got to figure out ways to reduce the space between us. Now, while I don't know for sure every step of the journey over these next bunch of weeks, how that's going to go, we're going to study some hard stuff and we're going to look at some practical solutions. It's this whole concept is undergirded by the last prayer that Jesus prayed. And what's interesting about this prayer that Jesus prayed is he didn't just pray a general prayer. Jesus prayer, prayed a prayer for you. Like, literally, he prayed for you. And so I want to look at that, and what I would submit to you is that uh, within the church, we are, we, we are ignoring this at record levels, uh, and I think you're going to see that we do it at our own peril. So what Jesus prayed for you in his last prayer, it, it's, it's not what you would think. It, it, it's so different, but yet it's so important. I want you to understand how important this is. I'm going to make some bold statements here. What Jesus is praying for is more um, important than, than our denominational statement. A lot of people show up at church first time, can I see your statement of faith? Sure, here's our statement of faith, and that's good. You should check out a church's statement of faith. That's important. But what Jesus is talking about here was more important than that. It's more important than how our building looks. It's more important than if we have stained glass windows. It's more important than how the worship is. It's more important than how the preaching is, the kids' ministry, the youth group, the small groups. But Jesus is praying for, for something for you that is much more important than that. It's more important that, than if we baptize our children or dedicate them. It's more Im important than how we take communion and who can take communion. You're going to see all of that in a few minutes. And if we get it right, and the very early, very early followers of Jesus did, at least for a short time anyway, if we get it right, there is nothing, there is no power, no force, there's no set of circumstances that can stand in the way of the church of Jesus Christ. But we often get it wrong. And it's a big deal. So jump in with me. John is, is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and John is following Jesus around, and John records this, what I would say is a crisis prayer of Jesus, because the whole thing is now beginning to unwind on Jesus and the boys, right? He, he's at this point hours away from arrest and trial and crucifixion and death. And, he, and, and so he begins to pray, and first he begins to pray for the disciples, and then he begins to pray... Well, here's what he said. Here's what John heard. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, who's Jesus praying for? You. You're here because you've come to believe in Jesus through the message of those disciples. He's literally praying for you, right? Mary Ellen, he's praying for you. Tad, it's hard for me to believe. He's praying for you. <laughs> this final crisis prayer. 
And so what does he pray? He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those, that's you, who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, and so that's us, that all of them may be one. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Is anybody else bummed out that that's his prayer? Because I, if I'm honest, your sometimes too fleshly pastor could, could find this a little disappointing. If somebody had come up to me and said, hey, John, Jesus is over there talking to his dad. I mic'd him. You want to hear what he's praying about? I just started, I, I, just, I just heard him. He, he's starting to pray about you. Are you, you want to listen in? I'd be going, oh, man. I cannot, Jesus is going to pray for me. I can't wait to hear what this is. And I would have an agenda of things I'd be hoping for, as you can imagine. Better hair, things like that. Serious things, though, right? Like, oh, man, what would I want Jesus to, I would want, I'd be like, Jesus, ask your dad to protect me. Nope, that's not what he prayed for for you. Jesus, ask your dad to bless me. You know, right? Don't we all, I mean, we have to, Jesus, ask dad to bless me. Nope, that's not what it is. Jesus, could you, um, listen, times are tough. Jesus, could you put in, talk to your dad about, I don't know, my job, my wife, my kids, my cancer? These are all serious things. It's not that Jesus is interest, interested in those things. Jesus is interested in those things. In fact, he said, bring all those things. Bring all of your, your burdens and your cares. But that's not what he prayed about in his moment of crisis. Before it's almost all over, that wasn't what he wanted for you. What he actually uh, asks for has to do with us. He asks that you and I, his future followers, be one. Now, show of hands here. How many of you in the last 30 days have spent some time in prayer asking God, God, I know, you know, I, I know I got a bad hairline. God, I know, you know, I know my marriage isn't great. I know my my kids are struggling, and so I'm going to bring all of those things to you, Lord. But, Lord, there is something that is so important. I just want to put it out there because it's of primary importance, Father. Lord, would you make me one with all of the other believers? Raise your hand if you've prayed that in the last 30 days. Hmm. Well, at least we have a bunch of truth-tellers here anyway. <laughs> because I didn't either. Right? And then, you know, Jesus not only prays that, he doubles down on it in a second because he, expl he, he explains it too. You know, Jesus, if you're aware of how he teaches, oftentimes he teaches in narrative form, in stories. And so he tells a story, and then a lot of times he just leaves you to figure it out, right? It's like a mic drop, and everybody sits around and goes, ah, well, what did that mean, right? Everybody tries to figure it out. Jesus doesn't leave this there. He goes and explains it. And I think he explains it not because he's trying to explain it to God because Jesus actually earlier had said that God already knows what you're praying for before you bring it. I think he explains it so John writes it down so you would know why he's praying that you would be one. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in, in me through their message that all of them may be one just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Stick with me now. How will the world know that Jesus is who he said he, he is? How will they know? They'll know if Jesus' followers in the days and years to come act like they're one. 
In fact, then he doubles down on it with a second reason. The first is that if you're unified, people will, will know that you sent me. Here's the second. He goes, I have given them glory. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they can be one just as we are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I and them and you and me so that, here comes the purpose again, why, Lord, why do they need to be one? Why am I praying it? So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer is that you and I together as late-day followers of his be so close, so united, the space between us so small. Well, the first reason is so that people would know that Jesus is who he said he is. Listen to me, guys. Our story is a weird story. Think this through. In, In a scientific age, here's part of our story. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a a sinless life, walked on water, raised the dead, turned water into wine, cast out demons, healed the sick and the blind, predicted his own death, was crucified, dead, and buried to pay the price for our sins. He was resurrected, thereby breaking the power of sin and death. He walked on earth again, and then in the presence of many others, was taken up into heaven, where he sent his Holy Spirit onto the earth to dwell within all of those who would believe. That's hard to believe, but that's our message. And Jesus says that to the extent his followers will be one, people will believe that. Jesus says people will not necessarily believe this because we convince them about our theological positions. Theology's right. It's important to have the right concepts of God or you could be just worshiping yourself. But he goes, they're going to believe these things about who I am, not because of the weight of the evidence. And there is weighty evidence to say that Jesus is who he said he is. They're not going to believe these things because we get our apologetics right. Our high schoolers are actually in there right now learning how to defend our faith, and we should know how to to defend what we believe. But Jesus says, all of that is not going to be the reason people are going to believe that I am who I'm saying I am. They're only going to believe to the extent the followers that come after these disciples live as one. Because Jesus understands the principle that you know too. You know this. One wins. One always wins. Conversely, here's what I would argue. If you want to understand why the church loses, why in the Western world Christianity seems oftentimes to be in a full-fledged retreat, why in our country people not only don't believe God loves them, they're not even sure of who God is, which is interesting because God is love. If you want to understand why so many of our kids grow up and walk away from the church, could it be that the problem is not that Jesus wasn't enough for them, but it was that you and I weren't one enough for them? Now, this is shocking. In fact, in fact disunity is part of our fallen nature. The scriptures teach that at the dawn of creation, this was not the way things were. That when God, when God, when God created us, when we lived in the garden, there, there was, an ex, there was a, a relational dynamic called shalom, where we lived in peace and unity and oneness and fullness and wholeness with God, with one another, and with creation. But that, that, that choice of man to be his own God destroyed that. And what began to happen was space began to get created between us. 
between you and I, between the creation and, and we, between God and us. Space came between us. Adam goes into hiding and separation. They make coverings one for another. But yet, even in that fallen nature, understand that this principle of one wins is a very powerful principle because one always wins. There is tremendous power in unity and oneness. And maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're just kind of coming back to church for the first time and you're here pleasing somebody, you know, making your girlfriend happy or your parents happy, and maybe you're not interested in the God part and you're not even sure about anything. Here's something you could take away from this. The scriptures were right about one overarching principle. There is a power in unity that, that is a force that can overwhelm and overcome the greatest of odds. One always wins. In fact, this principle is so strong, if you think about it, and you know a little bit of the biblical history, God actually had to step into human history because the force of unity was so strong. The problem with unity is the force of one wins is so strong if it goes in the wrong direction, and we've seen it over the years go in the wrong direction, right? We've seen troops in one uniform goose-stepping accord walk across Europe. We've seen that unity can win, but that's a dangerous, powerful force. Here's what I, I would conclude. I, I would conclude that division and separation, the space between us, is actually part of the curse of the fall. Some of you know the story. Sin enters the world. Shalom, oneness uh, disappears. Cain kills Abel. Abel, things quickly kind of spin out of control. By Genesis chapter 11, the writer records this very interesting story. Here's what he says. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Oneness. There was oneness there. Broken people, but one. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And here's what the Lord concluded. Check this out. The Lord said, if as one people, now remember God's plan for us is unity and shalom. If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. God even understands one wins. In one of the first nods to the Trinity, did you catch that? Let us go down there. God lives in oneness, three in one. Remember, Jesus said, I and you, you and me. And since one wins and man has this broken, sinful nature at this point, God has to come down and break up the oneness. Very painfully to his own heart, I'm sure, because this is not his desire for his people. But God separates us one for another. And it's not just language that over the years has made it very hard for us to live in unity. Now, interestingly enough, this is kind of cool. When Jesus dies, he says, it's better for me to go because the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to provide you with power to live, and, and you're going to do greater things than even I did. And so, so Jesus goes, and the Holy Spirit descends onto the early church. And do you know what the first thing the Holy Spirit does is? Luke records it in the book of Acts. He says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. So they began to speak a language that wasn't their own language. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Why? Because there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. God breaks up the unity when we are acting in our fallen nature, and, as we, and he restores the unity when we act out of our new nature. You see that? The fall results in division and separation for our own good to protect us from ourselves. New life in Christ results in, op- in oneness, in unity, a newfound power and ability to understand and hear each other. You get that? See, Jesus says, as you love one another, as you are one, the world will know who I am and the world will know that God loves them. One wins. But gosh, we do not take this seriously enough at all. We seem much more concerned about a lot of other things. In the coming weeks in this series, we're going to be looking at what it is that creates space between us. Actually, Jesus' brother, James, he has this question. He wrote a book in the New Testament. It's called James, coincidentally. And he poses this question. He goes, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? We're going to look at that, and we're going to look at ways to solve those things. We're going to ask that same question, try to answer it, give practical solutions to it. This is why SDI is such an important tool. This is why I want you to get involved in it, right? If we can lower conflict 80%, that's a pretty big deal, right? But today, before we go and look at all the things that cause problems and all the answers to those things, I want, to sh- I want you to understand why unity, why the space between us, why it's so important it shrinks. And I have to share with you something that's really been stuck in my craw for the last couple of weeks. Because I think what Jesus is saying here is really important. He's going, the world will understand I am who I am. The world will understand that God loves people to the degree you love one another, to the degree you're in agreement, to the degree you live in unity. So many of you guys are on social media. You have different social media accounts, right? And so when you have social media accounts, you see them kind of stream by. You see the groups that you're in and all the rest. And some of you are like in sports groups and in town groups. I often know my dogs are running out because we're in a local Long Valley group and somebody is always posting what idiot has the black lab that's running down whatever street, right? I'm in that group. And so uh, I'm in another group that most of you probably aren't in. You're not privileged enough to be in this group because you have to be a very special kind of person to be in. I am and you're not. And this is the group. You have to be a pastor, an ordained pastor, or you have to be an international worker. So these are like, see, you're not really all that bummed now, are you, anymore that you're not in this group. As you can imagine, it's not all that riveting, the stuff that's coming through. Um, But I'm in this group, and I got to get out of this group. (laughs) Here's here's why. this has been what's been coming through in the last couple of weeks. One, one person wrote this. Now, remember, who's the audience of these posts? Is the audience people outside of the world or outside of the church? No, these are pastors and international missionaries. Are you with me? That's the audience. That, that's the only way you're allowed in. The real problem in the American church is that most simply do not respect the word of God and don't believe there's power in the preaching of the word itself. Now, who's he saying this to? Preachers. When preachers preach restricted by the sensibilities of the flesh, they're admitting they don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to anoint the Word and make it effectual to the hearer. This is why megachurch, consumer-driven pop Christianity is an abject failure. Tell me how you really think. Numbers do not automatically translate into believers or disciples. 
Why do men think they're, be, they're to be loved by those who disdain the word? Why do pastors think they're not to be hated in this lost demonic culture? We're promised that we'll be hated. It is what it is. It'd be impossible to overemphasize the importance of sound doctrine in the life of a Christian. Right thinking about spiritual matters is imperative if we would have the right, for us to have the right living. Wow. I'm going, oh man, that, that is just loaded with agenda, right? Loaded with it. And so uh, another brother waded in um, into the comment stream, as people are wont to do. And uh, he was going back and forth. And at one point he goes, so you can stop with the calls to the importance of sound doctrine. We're all living on less than we could by being pastors who care about and teach sound doctrine. What I'm talking about with you is your tone. We're talking about a divisive, argumentative, and contentious spirit. We're talking about the feeling of self-appointed theological recess monitors that we get from you sometimes. Bro, we're all fellow licensed and ordained leaders. There's a problem in the world, but it's not in here. We're part of the solution. We're on the same team. To which came this response. Who are you to judge me? Seasoned with grace, what are you, the Holy Spirit? You don't get to decide what's grace and what's not. You judge through your opinion, not by some divine appointment. Sometimes truth just needs to be spoken plainly. And then a couple lines later, here's how the whole thread concluded. The administrator has turned off commenting on this <laughs> issue. Ladies and gentlemen, your church leaders. Then the world will know that you sent me and you've, you've loved them even, if, even as you've loved me if you'll be one. Man, we got to do better than that. We got to do better than that. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the power of one. Why in a world that praises and prizes autonomy, why maybe the church should reconsider that a little bit and start to think about unity and oneness Towards that end, I want to close with, with, with just kind of one reason that you should care, right? That before, before I teach you what causes the fights and I teach you how to get out of the fights, you need to, care, you need to know why it matters. Number one, the first reason is if you want to know why we're losing our kids, if you want to know pe why people don't even think about a God, there's a God anymore, it's because the pastors can't even talk to each other on Facebook anymore. Here's the second reason we have to get this right. The second reason is a supernatural reason that unity matters and why it should matter to you. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church in the city of Corinth. And in that church, this is going to be shocking. Wait till you hear what this church was arguing about. It's shocking. In that church, like most of the churches Paul is writing to, divisions had arisen. They were arguing all kinds of theological and doctr doctrinal issues. Go home and check this out. It's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians. And so here's how Paul opens the letter, because he catches wind of what's going on in the church from a friend. Here's what he writes to that church. He goes, I appeal to you. This is pretty strong. I'm appealing to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, you know what that actually, you know, whatever. <laughs> but it's like for Christ's sake, really, right? For Christ's sake. Okay, I don't mean that blasphemously. That's what Paul said. For the sake of Jesus. I'm asking you to stop. I'm asking that you would all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there's quarrels among you. And then he starts from there. For the next 11 chapters, he tries to settle the quarrels and fights that this church is having. Let me tell you what the church is fighting over. You can check this out, okay? You just got to go through and read the headlines, just the bold pieces. They're divided over the church leaders, who should be the leaders, who shouldn't, who they should follow, who they shouldn't, right? They were divided over sex issues. They were divided over who could sleep with who. They were divided over how you handle disputes within the church. Certain believers were suing other believers. They were divided over marriage issues, who could marry who. They were divided over food issues, who could eat what. Uh, They were divided over religious rules issues. They were divided over women's roles in the church issues. They were divided over issues of communion, who could take communion, who couldn't take communion. Now, how ridiculous is this? You couldn't believe a church would actually argue over any of those things, could you? I could go on and on. And so Paul, carefully, after he says them for Jesus' sake, would you stop? Paul gets to chapter 12 and he makes a turn after he addresses all of their stuff. And here's what he says to a fractious group of believers. He goes, do you know who you are? You are the body of Christ. And each of you has a part in it. You, this group of separating, fighting people, you that are pointing fingers at each other and waving waving hands at each other and separating over all these issues, you're the body of Christ. You are now, Paul's going, you don't understand. Since Jesus ascended, he's no longer here. His body is not here. His body is you. You are the body of Christ. You. Now, not you, Tad. That's fairly obvious to those that know you. But you, just joking. I'm going to go, Tad, I'm going to buy you coffee after this. <laughs> not you, Tad. Not you, Ramika. You are not the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Right? You're it. Collectively. Jesus isn't on earth, but you are. Together, you are his body. And when this is working right, now this is going to start to make sense. Because when this is working right, do you know what the closest somebody comes to getting to Jesus on this earth is? It's as close as they get to us. And that's why Paul's gone all, or Jesus is gone all, man, please make them one. Please make them one, because this is as close as people are going to get here to me. Uh, are them. We're the body of Christ. We're not individuals. We love individual Christianity. I get it, right? I guess I get it. I get the world we live in today, right? I mean, I know. I, I, I hear, you get up on Sunday morning, right? I have a friend that tells me he watches uh, me with his coffee on the toilet every week. Says that. <laughs> I don't know why he tells me that because I, I never feel good about it. <laughs> What's up, Mike? I get it, right? Like, you know, you don't need to come to church, man. I mean, the men of band is good, but John Hillsong's on YouTube, right? Man, you don't need to come to church, John. You know, I like you, John, but, you know, you're no Andy Stanley. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you, you know, you make me feel bad. So I like, what I like to do is get my coffee, a Hillsong video, and an Osteen talk. 
And I'm just, I'm good to go, man. Like, I'm good to go. And Jesus is going, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're missing out on the whole thing. You're supposed to be, as you come together, the body of Christ. Now, the church has gotten this over the years, right? Because the church has, we've seen what the church can do when it gets the oneness. By the way, we've seen what the church can do when it gets the oneness thing wrong, too. But we've seen what it can do when we get it right. My daughter, Caroline, is the queen of college visits. Um, I've been, if you follow me on Facebook, I've been to 21 college visits. 21, just with her. That doesn't include my other kids. And we've been to a lot of, a lot of, Caroline's a really good student. We've been to a bunch of good schools. Do you know what is at the heart of every school? And I'm talking about like prestigious schools, right? At the heart of every school, a church. Because when people, when the church was getting it right, it had a unified vision, it was sharing who Jesus was, it started saying, we got to educate the people. Every hospital, think of every hospital, Right? So many of them started by the church because the church was getting it right at one point. If you want the presence of Jesus, who, when it were two and three are gathered, I'm there in the midst of them. If you, you know, there's something about the coming together. We know this. We know it when we go, to, how much effect could I have had in Guatemala? None. What have we done in Guatemala? There's power there. Paul tries to explain it to the church. He backs up and goes, let me explain what I'm trying to teach you. I'll be done in a second. He goes, just as, just as a body, though one has many parts, all of its many parts form one body, so it is in Christ. This is Paul. He's saying this is how serious this is. He actually uses the term Christ and church interchangeably here. Just as one body, though it has many parts, all of its many parts form one body. You would think he'd say so it is with the church. No, he's going, because the church is Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And so as the body has many parts, so it is with Christ. He's using the terms interchangeably. That's how important this unity thing is. He goes, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part. Even though we were all, we were all given and believed this, there's still going to be many parts to the body. You, you know, if you were baptized as part of our church in that lake in Long Valley, you were not baptized into Mendham. You were not baptized into this church. You were baptized into the eternal, everlasting body of Jesus Christ. And it does not matter. And just share something like a lot of times people will be like, oh, Mendham, I can't go to that church. Why? Oh, everybody's rich there. Okay, well, let's start with me. Um, you know, look, truthfully, relative to the world, I'm, I'm rich. That's true. But everybody here is not rich but it keeps people from coming here, right? Oh, everybody there is, what, you know, you've heard some of this. Everybody there is whatever. And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. See, once you got baptized into the church, all that stuff goes away. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or educated or uneducated, good-looking or ugly. Clearly, it doesn't matter if you're ugly, right? You've all been given this gift, there are no ranks in here. Out there we rank and lift and elevate and tear and cast. In here there's no female or male or Greek or Jew or slave or free. There's one. And so he tries to explain it almost in kind of joke form. He goes, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Now this makes perfect sense to me because I detest feet. <laughs> I'm not a fan of feet Everybody knows this that knows me. I think they should always be covered. 
Ladies, I'll never understand why you paint your toenails to draw attention to feet. I don't get that. <laughs> Gentlemen, you're a whole nother issue. Your feet should always be covered. I have no idea why a guy thinks anybody wants to see his feet. And so Paul gets that, and that's why he uses this as an example. He's going, look, feet are bad, right? Hands are good, right? Now, the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, just because the foot goes, you know what? I'm not as good-looking, rich, smart, you know, whatever. I, what am I going to do? Mendham doesn't need me. The church doesn't need me. What am I going to do, you know? I don't, I don't, I'm not the smartest of the riches. I don't think exactly. I don't know. I can't, why can't? Hey, man, why don't you go to Bible study? I can't go to Bible study. Why? I don't know anything about the Bible. What? That's the whole point of Bible. You see, like, it's always something else, right? I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Paul's going, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, just because you say, I don't fit in, I'm different, it doesn't mean you're not a part of the body. You are a part of the body. Like, when you were baptized, you became part of the body of Jesus Christ. And let me correct the theology there. When you came to believe, you became part of the body of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, like, if the foot is yucky and it thinks it's yucky, and it is, it's not saying that it's not part of the body. It's part of the body because God put it there. And he goes on, if the ear should say, I love this, because the, the ear, see, the foot's envious of the ear, right? The foot's going, look at me, right? And then he's going, if I could just be the ear, then maybe people would like me. But the ear is looking at the eye. The ear should say, because I think Paul's almost laughing as he's writing this. And the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, well, I don't belong to the body, because I'm not an eye. Would it stop for that reason being part of the body, right? You know, the, the ear is obviously important, but it goes, gosh, you know, the eye is more important. The eye, I mean, you can't get by with an eye. I'm just an ear. I get all waxy and hairy when I get old, so I don't belong. But it doesn't, see, Paul's going to know in fact, here, he, 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 he tries to clear this up. He goes, look, if the, whole, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Eyes are great. Anybody ever seen an eye? Everybody, you know, everybody ever seen somebody pop an eyeball out? See? Because eyes are great when they're in the body, aren't they? But an eyeball outside of the body isn't all that attractive or functional, is it? Because the eyeball finds its purpose, hear me now, the eyeball finds its purpose, its dignity, its worth, its value, its beauty when it's in the body. It takes every part for this to work. And in, in Corinth, they're fighting over who's better, who follows who, who's got what gift. And look, there's two extremes here, right? Some of you this morning need to hear this, and, and maybe you've been the kind of person that's like, oh, the church is so pedestrian. These people are so uneducated, right? Like, I, I don't even know why I go. You know, there's car dealers in there. <laughs> that's to my friend that's a car dealer in the back, right? Oh. And so you think you're too good. I'm too good, man. I, wanna, I, wanna, I'm, I run a hedge fund. You want me to work in the church? What do you want me to do, get coffee? Right? I'm not going to do that. Some of you need to start going, man, like, you don't understand, dude. You might be like an ear, but, uh, you, you know, you're not all that good outside of the body. And some of you are going, you know, 
oh, I don't fit in here. Everybody's so much better. And I can't tell you how many people I've had say to me, oh, everybody at Menem's got their life all together. I'd like to ask you to raise your hand if you have your life together, but some of you would feel the pressure to lie and raise your hand, and I don't want to make you sin in church. So Paul's going, look, you need to understand what's going on here. You're so important one to another. I know you're different. I know you're different. I know you're not the same. Here's why it matters, because God put you together for a purpose and a reason. Check this out. This is some supernatural crazy stuff. I, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Do you know why you're here? Because God wanted you to be here. Because you have something to contribute to the family of God. I don't care if you think you're smarter or better than everybody here, or you think you're dumber and less than everybody here. You're here because God placed you here. You have something to contribute, every single one of us. Think about it. So much of what we pursue, now, now this is interesting. This is why we have to break down the space between us. So much of what we pursue and are looking for has to do with me finding my way and my destiny, my purpose, my call, my growth, my identity, my needs, and we're out there trying to pursue my thing. I think what Paul is saying, that if you're trying to find peace and purpose and identity and you're chasing after those things out there, this is why they're elusive. This is why every time you think you found your way and your cause and your purpose out there, it slips through your fingers. Why? Because you were made to function within a body, right? Not outside of the body. Now, there's always the opportunity for disunity when we don't get this, and that's why Paul says this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. I heard a guy riffing on this this week, and he was going, you know, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand would look back at the eye and go, really? Let me know how it goes with your contacts tonight, big boy. <laughs> and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body, listen to this. I need you to hear this. I don't know where I fit in. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if I should be here. I, you know, I don't know. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Didn't say the pastor was indispensable. Now I'd like you to believe that, but it does say that. Because the truth is, I'm highly dispensable. Because it's not about me. You are the body of Christ. And you are indispensable to the work of God. You're indispensable to the work of God. You keep trying to find your purpose and identity and calling out there. The eyeball does no good when it's not connected to the body. The foot does no good when it's not connected to the body. I mean, just think about the individual. Oh, you know, I don't feel very close to God. I have people tell me a lot, I don't feel close to God. To which, you know, I, I guess one of the things I'd ask you is how close do you, are you to his church? Because if you want to feel close to God, man, you got to get involved in his church because that's where he is. It's the body of Christ. Oh, you know, I don't feel like I'm growing anymore. I feel like I'm just kind of stagnant. To which I would say, like, you know, if you take a foot off the body, the foot stops growing. You know, if, you, if you're kind of plateaued in your, in your walk, how close are you to the body of Christ? Those of you that are going, I can't find my purpose. I don't know. What's my, I don't know what my purpose is. I, what's, what's the meaning of life? I think there's a lot of truth to be said that 
your purpose can be found when you start connecting who you are into the living, not always beautiful, but wonderful body of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why the world hasn't concluded that Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe that's why people don't really believe that God loves them because we haven't done a very good job with this. And then Paul concludes, and so you are the body of Christ. How will they believe? How will they know? When you are one. How will your kids know? When you're one. How will the school board change when they see us as one? One always wins.